Part 1, Chapter 7, Part 2 of The Roll Call by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part 1, Chapter 7, Part 2. 3. The written part of the examination lasted four days, and then there was an interval of one day in which the harassed and harried aspirants might restore themselves for the two days' ordeal of the Viva Voce. George continued to be well satisfied with his work up to the interval. He considered that he had perfectly succeeded in separating the lover and the examinee, and that nothing foreign to the examination could vitiate his activity therein. It was on the day of repose, a Wednesday, that a doubt suddenly occurred to him as to the correctness of his answer in the construction paper, to a question which began with the following formidable words. A girder, freely supported at each end and forty feet long, carries a load of six tons at a distance of six feet from one end, and another load of ten tons. Thus it went on for ten lines. He had always been impatient of detail, and he hated every kind of calculation. Nevertheless, he held that calculations were relatively easy, and that he could do them as well as the driest duffer in the profession when he set his mind to them. But the doubt as to the correctness of his answer developed into a certainty. Facing the question in private again, he obtained four different solutions in an hour. It was John Orgreave who ultimately set him right, convicting him of a most elementary misconception. Forthwith, his faith in his whole construction paper vanished. He grumbled that it was monstrous to give candidates an unbroken stretch of four hours' work at the end of a four-day effort. Yet earlier, he had been boasting that he had not felt the slightest fatigue. He had expected to see Marguerite on the day of repose. He did not see her. She had offered no appointment, and he said to himself that he had not the slightest intention of running after her. Such had become the attitude of the lover to the beloved. On the Thursday morning, however, he felt fit enough to face a dozen oral examiners, and he performed his morning exercises in the club bedroom with a positive ferocity of vigour. And then he was gradually overtaken by a black moodiness which he could not explain. He had passed through similar though less acute moods as a boy, but this was the first of the inexplicable sombre humours which at moments darkened his manhood. He had not the least suspicion that prolonged nervous tension due to two distinct causes had nearly worn him out. He was melancholy, and his melancholy increased. But he was proud, he was defiant. His self-confidence, as he looked back at the years of genuine hard study behind him, was complete. He disdained examiners. He knew that with all their damnable ingenuity, they could not floor him. The crisis arrived in the afternoon of the first of the two days. His brain was quite clear. Thousands of details about drainage, ventilation, shoring, architectural practice, lighting, subsoil specifications, iron and steel construction, underpinning the properties of building materials, strains, thrusts, water supply. Thousands of details about his designs, the designs in his testimonies of study, the design for his thesis, and the designs produced during the examination itself. All these peopled his brain, but they were in order, they were under control, they were his slaves. For four and a half hours, off and on, he had admirably displayed the reality of his knowledge, and then he was sent into a fresh room to meet a fresh examiner. There he stood in the room alone, with his designs for a small provincial town hall, a key plan, several one-eighth scale plans, a piece of half-inch detail, and two rough perspective sketches which he knew were brilliant. The room was hot. 
Through the open window came the distant sound of the traffic of Regent Street. The strange melancholy of a city in summer floated towards him from the outside and reinforced his own. The examiner, who had been snatching tea, entered briskly and sternly. He was a small, dapper, fair man of about fifty, with wonderfully tended fingernails. George despised him because Mr. Enright despised him, but he had met him once in the way of the firm's business and found him urbane. "'Good afternoon,' said George politely. The examiner replied, trotting along the length of the desk with quick short steps. "'Now about this work of yours, I've looked at it with some care.' His speech was like his demeanour and his fingernails. "'Bore,' thought George. But he could not actively resent the slight. He glanced round at the walls. He was in a prison. He was at the mercy of a tyrant invested within omnipotence. The little tyrant, however, was superficially affable. Only now and then, in his prim, courteous voice, was there a hint of hostility and cruelty. He put a number of questions, the answers of which had to be George's justification. He said, Hmm, and Ah, and Really? He came to the matter of spouting. Now, I object to hopperheads, he said. I regard them as unhygienic. And he looked coldly at George, with eyebrows lifted. George returned the gaze. I know you do, sir, George replied. Indeed, it was notorious that hopperheads to vertical spouting were a special antipathy of the examiner's. He was a famous faddist. But the reply was a mistake. The examiner, secure in his attributes, ignored the sally. A little later, taking up the general plan of the town hall, he said, The fact is, I do not care for this kind of thing. The whole tendency... Excuse me, sir, George interrupted, with conscious and elaborate respectfulness. But surely the question isn't one of personal preferences. Is the design good, or is it bad? Well, I call it bad, said the examiner, showing testiness. The examiner, too, could be impassive, was indeed apt to be short-tempered. The next instant he seized one of the brilliant perspective sketches, and by his mere manner of holding it between his thumb and finger, he sneered at it and condemned it. He snapped out, not angrily, rather pityingly, "'And what the devil's this?' George, furious, retorted, "'What the hell do you think it is?' He had not foreseen that he was going to say such a thing, the traffic in Regent Street, which had been inaudible to both of them, was loud in their ears. The examiner had committed a peccadillo, George, a terrible crime. The next morning, the episode, in various forms, was somehow common knowledge and a source of immense diversion. George went through the second day, but lifelessly. He was sure he had failed. Apart from the significance of the fact that the Viva Voce counted for 550 marks out of a total of 1,200, he felt that the Royal Institute of British Architects would know how to defend its dignity. On the Saturday morning, John Orgreave had positive secret information that George would be plucked. 4. On that same Saturday afternoon, George and Marguerite went out together. She had given him a rendezvous in Brompton Cemetery, choosing this spot partly because it was conveniently near, and partly in unconscious obedience to the traditional instinct of lovers for the society of the undisturbing dead. Each of them had a roofed habitation, but neither could employ it for the ends of love. Number eight was barred to George as much by his own dignity as by the invisible sword of the old man. And, of course, 
he could not break the immemorial savage taboo of a club by introducing a girl into it. The Duke of Wellington himself, though Candle Court was his purder, could never have broken the taboo of even so modest a club as Pickering's. Owing to the absence of Ag, who had gone to Wales with part of her family, the studio in Manresa Road was equally closed to the pair. Marguerite was first at the rendezvous. George saw her walking sedately near the entrance. Despite her sedateness, she had unmistakably the air of waiting at a tryst. Anybody at a glance would have said that she was expecting a man. She had the classical demure innocency of her situation. George did not care for that. Why? She, in fact, was expecting a man, and in expecting him she had nothing to be ashamed of. Well, he did not care for it. He did not care for her being like other girls of her class. In his pocket he had an invitation from Miss Wheeler for the next evening. Would Miss Wheeler wait for a man in a public place, especially a cemetery? Would Lois Ingram? Would Lorenzin? He could not picture them so waiting. Oh, simpleton unlearned in the world! A snob, too, no doubt. He actually thought that Hyde Park would have been better than the cemetery for their rendezvous. And illogical. If number eight had been open to them, and the studio and the club, he would have accepted with gusto the idea of an open-air rendezvous. But since there was no alternative to an open-air rendezvous, the idea of it humiliated and repelled him. Further, in addition to her culpable demure innocency, Marguerite was wearing black. Of course she was. She had no choice. Still, he hated her mourning. Moreover, she was too modest. She did not impose herself. Some girls wore mourning with splendid defiance. Marguerite seemed to apologise, seemed to turn the other cheek to death. He arrived critical, and naturally he found matter to criticise. Her greeting showed quite candidly the pleasure she had in the sight of him. Her heart was in the hand she gave him. He felt its mystic throbbings there. How are things, he began. I rather thought I should have been hearing from you. He softened his voice to match the tenderness of her smile, but he did it consciously. She replied, I thought you'd have enough to worry about with the exam without me. It was not a wise speech, because it implied that he was capable of being worried, of being disturbed in the effort of absorption necessary for the examination. He laughed a little harshly. Well, you see the result. He had written to tell her of the disastrous incident, and that failure was a certainty. A sort of shame had made him recoil from telling her to her face. It was easier to be casual in writing than in talking. The letter had at any rate tempered for both of them the shock of communication. Now he was out of humour with her because he had played the ass with an ass of an examiner, not because she was directly or indirectly responsible for his doing so, simply because he had done so. She was the woman. It was true that she, in part, was indirectly responsible for the calamity, but he did not believe it, and anyhow would never have admitted it. Oh, George, what a shame it was! As usual, not a trace of reproach from her, an absolute conviction that he was entirely blameless. What shall you do? You'll have to sit again. Sit again? Me? he exclaimed haughtily. I never shall. I've done with exams. He meant it. But shall you give up architecture, then? Certainly not. My dear girl, what are you thinking of? Of course I shan't give up architecture. But you needn't pass any exams to be an architect. Anybody can call himself an architect and be an architect without passing exams. Exams are optional. That's what makes old Enright so cross with our beautiful profession. He laughed again, harshly. 
All the time, beneath his quite genuine defiance, he was thinking what an idiot he had been to cheek the examiner, and how staggeringly simple it was to ruin years of industry by one impassive moment's folly, and how iniquitous was a world in which such injustice could be. Marguerite was puzzled. In her ignorance, she had imagined that professions were inseparably connected with examinations. However, she had to find a faith to accept his dictum, and she found it. Now about this afternoon, he said, I vote we take a steamboat down the river. I've made up my mind I must have a look at Greenwich again from the water. And we both need a blow. But won't it take a long time? She mildly objected. He turned on her violently and spoke as he had never spoken. What if it does? He knew that she was thinking of her infernal father, and he would not have it. He remembered all that Ag had said. Absurdly, Ag had shown nerve, too much nerve, to tackle him in the way she did. And the more he reflected upon Ag's interference, the more he resented it as impertinent. Still, Ag had happened to talk sense. Oh, nothing, Marguerite agreed quickly, fearfully. I should like to go. I've never been. Did we go to Chelsea Pier? Down Fernshaw Road will be the nearest. We'll go down Beaufort Street, he decided. He divined that she had suggested Fernshaw Road in order to avoid passing the end of the grove, where her father might conceivably see them. Well, he was not going out of his way to avoid her father. Nay, he was going slightly out of his way in order to give her father every chance of beholding them together. Although the day was Saturday, there was no stir on Chelsea Pier. The pier-keeper, indeed, was alone on the pier which rose high on the urgent flood-tide, so that the gangway to it sloped unusually upwards. No steamer was in sight, and it seemed impossible that any steamer should ever call at that forlorn and decrepit platform that trembled under the straining of the water. Nevertheless, a steamer did, after a little while, appear round the bend in Battersea Reach. She dropped her funnel, aimed her sharp nose at an arch of Battersea Bridge, and, finally, poising herself against the strong stream, bumped very gently and neatly, into contact with the pier. The pier-keeper went through all the classic motions of mooring, unbarring, barring and casting off, and in a few seconds the throbbing steamer, which was named with the name of a great Londoner, left the pier again with George and Marguerite on board. Nobody had disembarked. The shallow and handsome craft, flying its gay flags, crossed and recrossed the river, calling at three piers in the space of a few minutes. But all the piers were like Chelsea Pier, all the pier-keepers had the air of castaways upon shaking eyelids. The passengers on the steamer would not have filled a motor-bus, and they carried themselves like melancholy adventurers who have begun to doubt the authenticity of the inspiration which sent them on a mysterious quest. Such was travel on the Thames in the years immediately before Londoners came to a final decision that the Thames was meant to be ignored by the genteel town which it had begotten. George and Marguerite sat close together near the prow, saying little, the one waiting to spring, the other to suffer onslaught. It was in Lambeth Reach that the broad, brimming river challenged and seized George's imagination. A gusty, warm, southwest wind met the rushing tide and blew it up into foamy waves. The wind was powerful, but the tide was irresistible. Far away, Land's End, having divided the Atlantic surge, that same wind was furiously driving vast waters up the English Channel and round the Forelands, and also vast waters up the west coast of Britain. 
the twin surges had met again in the outer estuary of the Thames, and joined their terrific impulses to defy the very wind which had given them strength. And the mighty flux swept with unregarding power through the mushroom city, whose existence on its banks was a transient episode in the everlasting life of the river. The river seemed to threaten the city that had confined it in stone, and George, in the background of his mind, which was obsessed by the tormenting enigma of the girl by his side, also threatened the city. The uncompromising arrogance of the student who has newly acquired critical ideas, he estimated and judged it. He cursed the Tate Gallery, and utterly damned Dalton's works. He sternly approved Lambeth Palace, the Houses of Parliament, Westminster Abbey, Somerset House, Waterloo Bridge and St Paul's. He cursed St Thomas's Hospital and the hotels. He patronised New Scotland Yard. The Isambard Brunel penetrated more and more into the heart of the city, fighting for every yard of her progress. Flags stood out straight in the blue sky, traversed by swift white clouds. Huge rudderless barges, each with a dwarf in the sedan, struggling at a giant's oar, were borne westwards, broadside on, like straws upon the surface of a hurrying brook. A launch with an orchestra on board flew gaily past. Tugs with a serpentine tail of craft threaded perilously through the increasing traffic. Railway trains, cabs, coloured omnibuses, cyclists and footfarers mingled in and complicated the scene. Then the first ocean-going steamer appeared, belittling all else. And then the calm, pale beauty of the Custom House at last humbled George, and for an instant made him think that he could never do anything worth doing. His pride leapt up, unconquerable. The ocean-going steamers, as they multiplied on the river, roused in him wild and painful longings to rush to the ends of the earth and gorge himself on the immense feast which the great romantic earth had to offer. By Jove, he exclaimed passionately, I'd give something to go to Japan. Would you? Marguerite answered with mildness. She had not the least notion of what he was feeling. Her voice responded to him, but her imagination did not respond. True, as he had always known, she had no ambition. The critical quality of his mood developed. The imperious impasse came to take her to task. What's the latest about your father? he asked, with a touch of impatient, aggrieved disdain. Both were aware that the words had opened a crucial interview between them. She moved nervously on the seat. The benches that ran along the deck rails met in an acute angle of the stem of the steamer, so that the pair sat opposite each other, with their knees almost touching. He went on. I hear he hasn't gone back to the office yet. No, said Marguerite, but he'll start again on Monday, I think. But is he fit to go back? I thought he looked awful. She flushed slightly at the indirect reference to the episode in the basement on the night of the death. It will do him good to go back, said Marguerite. I'm sure he misses the office dreadfully. George gazed at her person. Under the thin glove, he suddenly detected the form of her ring. She was wearing it again, then. He could not remember whether she had worn it at their last meeting in Ag's studio. The very curious fact was that at their last meeting he had forgotten to look for the ring. Not only was she wearing the ring, but she carried a stylish little handbag which she had given her. When he bought that bag in the Burlington Arcade, it had been a bag like any other bag. But now it had become part of her, individualised by her personality, a mysterious and provocative bag. 
Everything she wore, down to her boots and even her bootlaces so neatly threaded and knotted, was mysterious and provocative. He examined her face. It was marvellously beautiful. It was ordinary. It was marvellously beautiful. He knew her to the depths. He did not know her at all. She was a chance acquaintance. She was a complete stranger. How are you getting on with him? You know, you really ought to tell me. Oh, George, she said, earnestly vivacious, you're wrong in thinking he's not nice to me. He is. He's quite forgiven me. Forgiven you? George took her up. I should like to know what he had to forgive. Well, she murmured timorously, you understand what I mean. He drummed his elegant feet on the striated deck. Out of the corner of his left eye he saw the medieval shape of the tower rapidly disappearing. In front were the variegated funnels and masts of fleets gathered together in St. Catherine's Dock and London Dock. The seamer gained speed as she headed from Cherry Gardens Pier towards the middle of the river. She was a frail trifle compared with the big boats that lined the wharves, but in herself she had size and irresistible force travelling quite smoothly over the short, riotous, sparkling waves which her cut-water divided and spurned away on either side. Only a tremor faintly vibrated throughout her being. "'Has he forgiven you for being engaged?' George demanded with rough sarcasm. She showed no resentment of his tone, but replied gently, "'I did try to mention it once, but it was no use. He wasn't in a condition. He may be quite afraid. Not for me, of course, but for him.' "'Well, I give it up,' said George. "'I simply give it up. It's past me. "'How soon's he going to be in condition? "'He can't keep us walking about the streets forever.' "'No, of course not,' she smiled to placate him. "'There was a pause, and then George, his eyes fixed on her hand, remarked, "'I see you've got your ring on.' "'She too looked at her hand. "'My ring? Naturally. What do you mean?' "'He proceeded cruelly. I suppose you don't wear it in the house, so that the sight of it shan't annoy him. She flushed once more. Oh, George, dear! At last asked for mercy for magnanimity. Do you wear it when you're in the house, or don't you? Her eyes fell. I don't excite him. Truly, I don't. It wouldn't do. It wouldn't be right. She was admitting George's haphazard charge against her. He was astounded. But he merely flung his head and raised his eyebrows. He thought, And yet she sticks to it, he's nice to her. My God! He said nothing aloud. The Royal Hospital Greenwich showed itself in the distance like a domed island rising fabulously out of the blue-green water. Even far off, before he could decipher the main contours of the gigantic quadruple pile, the vision excited him. His mind, darkened by the most dreadful apprehensions concerning Marguerite, dwelt on it darkly, sardonically, and yet with pleasure. And he proudly compared his own disillusions with those of his greatest forerunners. His studies, and the example of Mr. Enright, had inspired him with an extremely enthusiastic worship of Inigo Jones, whom he classed, not without reason, among the great creative artists of Europe. He snorted when he heard the Royal Hospital referred to as the largest and finest charitable institution in the world. For him, it was the supreme English architectural work. He snorted at the thought of that pompous and absurd monarch James I ordering Inigo Jones to design him a palace surpassing all palaces, and choosing a sublime site, therefore, and then doing nothing. He snorted at the thought of that deluded monarch Charles I ordering Inigo Jones to design him a palace surpassing all palaces, 
and receiving from Inigo Jones the plans of a structure which would have equalled in beauty and eclipsed in grandeur any European structure of the Christian era, even Chambord, even the Escurial, even Versailles, and then accomplishing nothing beyond a tiny fragment of the sublime dream. He snorted at the thought that Inigo Jones had died at the age of nearly eighty, ere the foundations of the Greenwich Palace had begun to be dug, and without having seen more than the fragment of his unique white hall. After a youth spent in arranging masks for a stupid court, and an old age spent in disappointment. But then no English monarch had ever begun and finished a palace. George wished, rather venturesomely, that he had lived under Francis I. The largest and finest charitable institution. The ineffable William and Mary had merely turned it into a charitable institution because they did not know what else to do with it. The mighty halls, which ought to have resounded to the laughter of the mistresses of Charles II, were diverted to the inevitable scholar of almsgiving. The mutilated victims of the egotism and the fatuity of kings were imprisoned there together under the rules and regulations of charity, the cruelest of all rules and regulations. And all was done meanly, that is, all that interested George. Christopher Wren, who was building St Paul's and fighting libels and slanders at a salary of two hundred a year, came down to Greenwich and for years worked immortally for nothing amid material difficulties that never ceased to multiply and he too was beaten by the huge monster. Then Vanborough arrived, and blithely finished in corrupt brick and flaming manifestations of decadence that which the pure and monumental genius of Inigo Jones had first conceived. The north frontages were marvels of beauty. The final erections to the south amounted to an outrage upon Jones and Wren. Still, the affair was the largest and finest charitable institution on earth. What a country, thought George, hugging injustice. So it had treated Jones and Wren and many another. So it had treated Enright. And so it would treat, was already treating, him, George. He did not care. As the steamer approached Greenwich and the details of the aborted parish grew clearer, and he could distinguish between the genius of Jones and the genius of Wren, he felt grimly and victoriously sure that both Jones and Wren had had the best of the struggle against indifference and philistinism as he too would have the best of the struggle, though he should die obscure and in penury. He was miserable and resentful, and yet he was triumphant. The steamer stopped at the town pier. Are we there? said Marguerite. Already? Yes, he said, and I think we may as well go back by the same steamer. She concurred. However, an official insisted on them disembarking, even if they meant to re-embark at once. They went ashore. The façade of the palace hospital stretched majestically to the left of them, in sharp perspective a sensational spectacle. "'It's very large,' Marguerite commented. Her voice was nervous. "'Yes, it's rather more than large,' he said dryly. He would not share his thoughts with her. He knew that she had some inklings of taste, but in that moment he preferred to pretend that her artistic perception was on a level with that of William and Mary.' They boarded the steamer again and took their old places, and the menacing problem of their predicament was still between them. "'We can have some tea downstairs, if you like,' he said, after the steamer had turned round and started upstream. She answered in tones imperfectly controlled. "'No, thank you. I feel as if I couldn't swallow anything.' And she looked up at him very quickly, with the embryo of a smile, and then looked down again very quickly, because she could not bring the smile to maturity. George thought, 
Am I going to have a scene with her on the steamer? It would not matter much if a scene did occur. There was nobody else on deck forward of the bridge. They were alone. They were more solitary than they might have been in the studio or in any room at number eight. The steamer was now nearly heading the wind, but she travelled more smoothly, for she had the last of the flood tide under her. George said, kindly and persuasively, "'Pon my soul, I don't know what the old gentleman's got against me.' She eagerly accepted his advance, which seemed to give her courage. "'But there's nothing to know, dear. We both know that. There's nothing at all. And yet, of course, I can understand it. So can you.' In fact, it was you who first explained it to me. If you'd left number eight when I did, and he'd heard of our engagement afterwards, he wouldn't have thought anything of it. But it was you staying on at the house that did it, and him not knowing of the engagement. He thought you used to come to see me at nights at the studio, me and Ag, and make fun of everything at number eight, especially of his wife. He's evidently got some idea in his head, and there's no getting it out again. But it's childish. I know. However, we've said all this before, haven't we? But the idea's got to be got out of his head again, said George vigorously, more dictatorially and less persuasively than before. Marguerite offered no remark. And after all, George continued, he couldn't have been so desperately keen on your stepmother. When he married her, your mother hadn't been dead so very long, had she? No, but he never cared for mother anything like so much as he cared for Mrs. Lobley. At least... Not as far back as I can remember. It was a different sort of thing altogether. I think he was perfectly mad about Mrs. Lobley. Oh, he stood Mother's death much, much better than hers. You've no idea. Oh, yes, I have. We know all about that sort of thing, said George, the man of the world, impatiently. Marguerite said tenderly, It's broken him. Nonsense. It has, George. Her voice was very soft. But George would not listen to the softness of her voice. Well, he objected firmly and strongly, supposing it has, what then? We're sorry for him. What then? That affair has nothing to do with our affair. Is all that reason why I shouldn't see you in your own home? Or are we to depend on Ag when she happens to be at her studio? Or are we always to see each other in the street, or in museums and things, or steamers, just as if you were a shop girl? We may just as well look facts in the face, you know. She flushed. Her features changed under emotion. Oh, George, I don't know what to do. Then you think he's determined not to have anything to do with me? She was silent. You think he's determined not to have anything to do with me, I say? He may change, Marguerite murmured. May change be dashed. We've got to know where we stand. He most surprisingly stood up, staring at her. She did not speak, but she lifted her eyes to his with timid courage. They were wet. George abruptly walked away along the deck. The steamer was passing the custom house again. The tide had now almost slacked. Fresh and heavier clouds had overcast the sky. All the varied thoughts of the afternoon were active in George's head at once. Architecture, architects, beauty, professional injustices, girls, his girl. Each affected the others, for they were deeply entangled. It is a fact that he could not put Inigo Jones and Christopher Wren out of his head. He wondered what had been their experiences with women. Histories and textbooks of architecture did not treat of this surely important aspect of architecture. He glanced at Marguerite from the distance. He remembered what Ag had said to him about her. But what Ag had said did not appear to help him practically. Why had he left Marguerite? Why was he standing thirty feet from her, 
and observing her inimically. He walked back to her, sat down, and said calmly, Listen to me, darling. Suppose we arrange now, definitely, to get married in two years' time. How will that do for you? But, George, can you be sure that you'll be able to marry in two years? He put his chin forward. You needn't worry about that, said he. You needn't think because I've failed an exam. I don't know what I'm about. You leave all that to me. In two years, I should be able enough to keep a wife, and well. Now, shall we arrange to get married in two years' time? It might be a fearful drag for you, she said, because, you know, I don't really earn very much. That's not the point. I don't care what you earn. I shan't want you to earn anything, so far as that goes. Any earning that's wanted, I shall be prepared to do. I'll put it like this. Supposing I'm in a position to keep you, shall we arrange to get married in two years' time? He found a fierce pleasure in reiterating the phrase. So long as that's understood, I don't mind the rest. If we have to depend on ag or meet in the streets, never mind. It'll be an infernal nuisance, but I expect I can stand it as well as you can. Moreover, I quite see your difficulty. Quite. And let's hope the old gentleman will begin to have a little sense. Oh, George, if only he would. He did not like our habit of, oh, George, oh, George. Well, he waited, ignoring her pious aspiration. I don't know what to say, George. He restrained himself. We're engaged, aren't we? She gave no answer, and he repeated, We're engaged, aren't we? Yes. That's all right. Well, will you give me your absolute promise to marry me in two years' time, if I'm in a position to keep you? It's quite simple. You say you don't know what to say, but you've got to know what to say. As he looked at her averted face, his calmness began to leave him. Oh, George, I can't promise that, she burst out, showing at length her emotion. The observant skipper on the bridge noticed that there were a boy and a girl forward having a bit of a tiff. George trembled. All that Ag had said recurred to him once more. But what could he do to act on it? Anger was gaining on him. Why not? he menaced. It would have to depend on how father was. Surely you must see that. Indeed, I don't see it. I see quite the contrary. We're engaged. You've got the first call on me, and I've got the first call on you, not your father. The skin over his nose was tight, owing to the sudden swelling of two points, one on either side of the bone. George, I couldn't leave him again. I think now I may have been wrong to leave him before. However, that's over. I couldn't leave him again. It would be very wrong. He'd be all alone. Well, then, let him be friends with me. I do wish he would. Yes, well, wishing won't do much good. If there's any trouble, it's entirely your father's fault, and what I want to know is... Would you give me your absolute promise to marry me in two years' time? I can't, George. It wouldn't be honest. I can't. I can't. How can you ask me to throw over my duty to father? He rose and walked away again. She was profoundly moved, but no sympathy for her mitigated his resentment. He considered that her attitude was utterly monstrous. Monstrous! He could not find a word adequate for it. He was furious. His fury increased with each moment. He returned to the prow, but did not sit down. Don't you think, then, you ought to choose between your father and me? He said, in a low, hard voice, standing over her. W what do you mean? she faltered. What do I mean? It's plain enough what I mean, isn't it? Your father may live twenty years yet. Nobody knows. The older he gets, the more obstinate he'll be. 
We may be kept hanging about for years and years and years indefinitely. What's the sense of it? You say you've got your duty, but what's the object of being engaged? Do you want to break it off, George? Now, don't put it like that. You know I don't want to break it off. You know I want to marry you. Only you won't, and I'm not going to be made a fool of. I'm absolutely innocent. Of course you are, she agreed eagerly. Well, I'm not going to be made a fool of by your father. If we're engaged, you know what it means. Marriage. If it doesn't mean that, then I say we've no right to be engaged. Marguerite seemed to recoil at the last words, but she recovered herself. And then, heedless of being in a public place, she drew off her glove and drew the engagement ring from her finger and held it out to George. She could not speak. The gesture was her language. George was extremely staggered. He was stupefied for an instant. Then he took the ring, and under an uncontrollable savage impulse, he threw it into the river. He did not move for a considerable time, staring at the river in front. Neither did she move. At length he said in a cold voice, without moving his head, Here's Chelsea Pier. She got up and walked to the rail amidships. He followed. The steamer moored. A section of rail slid aside. The pier-keeper gave a hand to Marguerite, who jumped onto the pier. George hesitated. The pier-keeper challenged him testily. Now then, are you coming ashore or aren't ye? George could not move. The pier-keeper banged the rail to close the gap and cast off the ropes, and the steamer resumed her voyage. A minute later, George saw Marguerite slowly crossing the gangway from the pier to the embankment. There she went. She was about to be swallowed up in the waste of human dwellings in the measureless and tragic expanse of the indifferent town. She was gone. Curse her with her reliability. She was too reliable. He knew that. Her father could rely on her. Curse her with her outrageous, incredibly cruel and unjust sense of duty. She had held him once. Once the sight of her had made him turn hot and cold. Once the prospect of life without her had seemed unbearable. He had loved her, instinctively and intensely. He now judged and condemned her. Her beauty, her sweetness, her belief in him, her reliability. These qualities were neutralised by her sense of duty, awful, uncompromising, blind to fundamental justice. The affair was over. If he knew her, he knew also himself. The affair was over. He was in despair. His mind went round and round like a life-prisoner exercising in an enclosed yard. No escape. Till then he had always believed in his luck. Infantile delusion. He was now aware that destiny had struck him a blow once for all. But of course he did not perceive that he was too young, not ripe, for such a blow. The mark of destiny was on his features, and it was out of place there. He had lost Marguerite. And what had he lost? What was there in her? She was not brilliant, she had no position, she had neither learning nor wit. He could remember nothing remarkable that they had ever said to each other. Indeed, their conversations had generally been rather banal. But he could remember how they had felt, how he had felt, in their hours together. The sensation communicated to him by her hand when he had drawn off her glove in the tremendous silence of the handsome. Marvellous, exquisite, magical sensation that no words of his could render and there had been others as rare. These scenes were love. They were Marguerite. They were what he had lost. Strange that he should throw the ring into the river. 
Nevertheless, it was a right gesture. She deserved it. She was absolutely wrong. He was absolutely right. She had admitted it. Towards him, she had no excuse. Logistically, her attitude was absurd. Yet no argument would change it. Stupid, that's what she was. Stupid and ruthless. She would be capable of martyrising the whole world to her sense of duty, her damnable, insane sense of duty. She was gone. He was ruined. She had ruined him. But he respected her. He hated to respect her. But he respected her. A thought leapt up in his mind. And who could have guessed it? It was the thought that the secrecy of the engagement would save him from a great deal of public humiliation. He would have loathed saying, We've broken it off. End of part one, chapter seven, part two.